This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in snowy downtown Madison. We hope you're staying safe and warm. So here's the latest news on the winter blizzard. Governor Tony Evers declared an emergency, an energy emergency today, helping to streamline the delivery of fuel as the winter blizzard reaches dangerously low temperatures. Southern Wisconsin is now under a hazardous weather outlook, according to the National Weather Service, which projected higher amounts of snowfall west and north of Madison this afternoon. Winds are expected to be increasing right around now, resulting in a sharp drop in temperature and blowing snow in most areas. The wind chill tomorrow is expected to be between 20 and 35 degrees below zero. Now, yesterday, we let you know that city offices will be closed until next Tuesday and that some essential functions like trash pickup are postponed to next week. And today we can add that all Madison Public Libraries shut down this afternoon and will be closed tomorrow. Libraries will reopen next Tuesday. Madison Streets Division is warning the city to expect slippery, snow-covered roads until sometime next week. Main roads are being plowed now, and the city has switched to using sand because at cold temperatures like these, salt becomes less effective. Operations to plow every street in the city will get underway in just a few hours at midnight. But because of the high persistent winds, areas plowed what once may be covered again. And in more storm-related news, the Wisconsin State Journal is reporting that Porchlight Incorporated, which manages a new temporary men's shelter, saw a record number of guests on Monday night. 241 guests stayed, beating the previous record from last year of 187 guests. The nonprofit has seen steady increases in average guests since the summer, the increase is likely due to the onset of winter weather and more shelter spaces being available. The city recently renovated a former big box store near East Town Mall, which adds beds, restrooms, and additional infrastructure. Women and family shelters are also seeing escalated numbers. Congressional lawmakers have approved a large defense bill, which would, among other things, add a new heavy icebreaker to the Great Lakes shipping fleets. Thick ice cover in previous years has caused significant delays in shipping times, and the cost of these delays can be several thousand dollars for each hour a ship is delayed. The Coast Guard currently operates six icebreakers, which are roughly 40 years old on average, only one of which can clear through thicker ice. This has previously been an issue for shipping when that ship has been out of commission due to repairs. U.S. legislators from Wisconsin's Tammy Baldwin and Mike Gallagher voiced their support for the bill, stating that a new icebreaker is essential for keeping Wisconsin economically competitive during the winter months. The bill now heads to President Biden's desk. Attorney General Josh Call has joined the fray in advocating for how some of Wisconsin's budget surplus should be used. The top state prosecutor is calling to invest more in criminal justice programs in the state's next budget, saying there's a critical need to invest in public safety. Call was elected in November 
when discussions of crime and safety dominated debates of the midterm elections. Call is asking the state to allocate some of its $6.6 billion budget surplus to local law enforcement agencies, community policing initiatives, background checks, and officer wellness grants. Reports of hate crimes are on the rise in Wisconsin, even as fewer police stations are reporting these statistics across the state. That's according to a recent report by the FBI. The report states that 111 hate crimes were documented in Wisconsin last year, while only 72 were reported in 2020. 30% of reported hate crimes in 2021 targeted Black Americans, while 15% targeted White Americans. 12% targeted members of the LGBTQ community. Incidents ranged from vandalism and intimidation to assault of victims. An FBI press release attributes the drop in police reports to a transition to a new reporting system. A former Sun Prairie music teacher has been indicted on three counts of child pornography. While while those charges were filed in October, an affidavit and search warrant unsealed earlier this month show that Matthew Quaglieri told police that he had been recording the genitals of young boys in school restrooms for four to five years. That's according to reporting from the Wisconsin State Journal. Police allege that the teacher used an iPad stashed under his arm to record the videos, according to unsealed filings. Police have so far recovered videos containing 10 students at the middle school. UW-Madison's first tribal director is retiring in January. Aaron Bird Bear became director in 2019, but has been working on campus for over two decades, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Prior to Bird Bear's arrival, the university only had Native American student groups and various indigenous courses. Now he started the First Nations Cultural Landscape Tour to highlight the history of the Ho-Chunk population and to help first year retention of Native American students. The role of Tribal Relations Director helps facilitate long-term relationships with Native nations, just as a Director of State Relations allies with the state. During retirement, Bird Bear is looking looking forward to, quote, spiritual nourishment of snowboarding, unquote. And now on to today's top stories. Many retailers and other businesses have pledged to phase out so-called forever chemicals, known as PFAS, found in their products. A major company announced such a move this week, providing hope for Wisconsin residents worried about the environmental and health impacts. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin and all other states have seen the effects of so-called forever chemicals. Those pushing for their removal say 3M's announcement to phase them out is another step in the right direction. The major manufacturer of products from cleaning supplies to post-it notes says it plans to ensure it's no longer producing items containing PFAS chemicals by the year 2025. John Rumpler of the group Environment America says this is an important step in trying to reduce harmful pollutants from reaching natural resources. PFAS chemicals are toxic and they persist in the environment. They've been contaminating drinking water sources all across the country. States like Wisconsin have enacted large-scale responses, including new water standards, following detection of forever chemicals in soil and groundwater. 
3M has faced multiple legal challenges for producing PFAS while allegedly knowing the dangers. It says it made the decision based on changes in the business and regulatory landscape. In August, the federal EPA said it would propose designating certain PFAS chemicals as hazardous substances. Other companies, such as retailers and restaurants, have made similar pledges to eliminate or reduce use of forever chemicals in food packaging, textiles, and other products. Still, Rumpler says others need to follow suit, and he hopes this week's announcement will spur more action. 3M is hardly the only game in town, but it is a major player in the industry space and a significant marker for its peers about moving in the right direction. Scott Laser of the group Clean Wisconsin says there are further opportunities in the Badger State. He cites responses by the Culver's restaurant chain and public safety departments as a promising effort to protect the public. Anytime that we can reduce our water's exposure to PFAS, our food's exposure to PFAS, and our use of products that might allow PFAS to get in the dust in our home that we then inhale, we will reduce our exposure to these chemicals in our bodies. Some businesses, including the state's large paper industry, have balked at the state's response. Meanwhile, as part of the evolving research surrounding PFAS contamination, experts have linked these chemicals to multiple health risks, including increased risk of kidney or testicular cancer, as well as small decreases in infant birth weights. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Yesterday was the winter solstice, bringing in perhaps a more quiet and reflective season. The day marks the start to the astronomical winter and the shortest day of the year with the fewest hours of sunlight. Last night, the sun set at 425 in the afternoon. Groups around Madison traditionally celebrate the solstice with a bonfire. Yesterday, Monona offered a bonfire and hot chocolate along the sand Amiano shoreline. The Judge Monroe neighborhood celebrated with a bonfire at the Glenwood Children's Park and others gathered on the Capitol Square to remember people who had died without shelter in Dane County. But perhaps the largest solstice celebration each year is on the east side, where members of the Shank, Atwood, Starkweather, Yahara, and Eastmoreland neighborhoods gather at Albrick Park for a massive bonfire. And that Starkweather winter solstice celebration celebrated its 20th anniversary last night, And according to tradition, participants are instructed to write down wishes or banishments on pieces of paper to throw them into the fire. Now, while we weren't able to make it out last night, WORT director, news director headed to Ulbricht Park on the solstice five years ago to check out the scene and ask people what they were hoping to forget about the year behind them. Here's what they said in 2017. Monkey, what would you throw into the fire if we got no time? What would you have thrown into the fire? She's with WRT, so we should step up. <laughs> oh, something real. Okay. Well, like oh, no, no, you like write that. it down like a, a you know, I, I write it. down, like, you know, my entire stash of Valium. And, but you write, <laughs> you write it on the paper and you throw it in. You don't actually throw yeah. in value. No, that's good. That's what you would like to get rid of and um, hope it would change in the next year. Get rid of despair. I get rid of despair and have more joy and levity. I would get rid of the complacency surrounding Donald Trump's administration. In the White House. Ugh. Terrible.
Hello, uh, listeners of WRT. Had I got here in time, which I didn't, I would have thrown my entire life into that fire. My belief that love has to hurt. And <laughs> that I'm not worthy of love. <laughs> no, I want to give you a <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if you're a hooker. <laughs> you totally are. <laughs> Thanks. It's okay. <laughs> and my excessive self doubt. <laughs> I threw in the fire my bad anxiety and bad mental health. <laughs> The fire went away. No, who put out the fire? The firemen did, buddy. Right. All the guys with the vests on. Do you have the vests? Yeah, I helped put out the fire. Yeah. Oh. Where's the guy with the vests? Where's the guy with the vests? I like that. Anyway, what I chose to get rid of was depression, which is something I've dealt with all my life and was great to watch it go up in smoke. Reporting for WORT, I'm Shally Pittman. With the filing deadline for the spring 2023 election just around the corner, we continue our exit interview series with one more alder not seeking re-election. Brian Benford served as one term representing Eastside neighborhoods in District 6. Previously, he represented the nearby District 12 for several terms in the mid-2000s. Alder Benford spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout yesterday about his time on the council and what's on his horizon. Brian Benford has served just one term as the alder of Madison's District 6, and this spring he will join five other incumbent alders not seeking re-election. Brian joins me now by phone. Brian, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Nate. Now, Brian, you've represented District 6 since 2021. Why are you not seeking re-election? Well, as many people might know, that city created new districts, and I was drawn out of my district. So I feel it's time to uh, certainly not want to move to keep the seat. So that that's one reason. The second reason is I definitely believe that Newer leaders should be cultivated, and uh, we should make room for younger leaders to take over. So that's a big premise of my service. And what's been one accomplishment that you are the most proud of in your time as Alder? Well, as in the past, when I was Alder at District 12, uh, and as now, the thing that I'm most proud of is that I always try to open doors to public policy for those that never had a voice, those that have been historically marginalized. So that's certainly something that I've been proud of, is trying to create pathways for all to get involved in public policy. In just this year and a half, you've been involved in a couple different projects and initiatives and things like that. Are there any? Is there any one in particular that you feel most passionate about? Oh, absolutely. I am so excited about uh, the Madison Equal Opportunities Commission 
creating a truth and reconciliation process for the city of Madison with the hopes of bringing people from diverse backgrounds together in unity and respect and love to forge a new safe and socially just and equitable Madison. So I'm really excited about uh, the work that this group will be doing after the first of the year as we assemble the working group to have ownership and to create this process for the city. So I, I believe in my heart that it will be a sustainable way for all of us to come together to make Madison the model city that it can be. And now going off of that a little bit, why why is a truth and reconciliation process so important to both you and the city of Madison as a whole? And then from there, you know, you only have about four months left on the council. What do you hope to see happen with that process once your time as an alder comes to an end? Well, perhaps most listeners know, uh, as I'm sure you do, that we live in a tale of two cities that... For many, uh, Madison's a wonderful place, but for those, especially BIPOC people and historically marginalized people, it could be one of the most dismal places, which has led us to this tale of two cities. So within the African-American community, uh, life is very challenging across every facet of life living here in Madison. So even when I'm off the council, this was initiated by the city's Equal Opportunities Commission. And my role as an alder, when that ends in April, I would love to support this working group once it's formed, to support their efforts in bringing folks together. So that doesn't, it's something I'm extremely passionate about, that in my interactions, I've been here since 1979, I've witnessed just tremendous, generous, amazing people that live here in the city of Madison. But sadly, the issues of racial disparities aren't talked about, and I believe that this group can heighten the level of awareness around it, and that will bring people together to really work on addressing these disparities in an intentional way. And so now we've talked about what you feel most proud of in your time as Alder, but let's look at the other end of the spectrum. Is there anything that you feel like you sort of left on the table or didn't quite get around to addressing? Well, see, not really. And let me just share that I believe the services in Alder is truly public service in that uh, it isn't so much about policy initiatives or things, accomplishments of those sorts, but really just trying to do your best to represent everybody's uh, voices in the city, regardless of background, but to certainly ensure that those that have been historically marginalized have a voice at the table. So as I look back on my service, I'm extremely proud of another thing that was really important to me is I guess I'm a little bit different than most alders that I don't believe it's healthy for our local democracy for especially at the local level for people to stay in office for so long Uh, especially as I mentioned earlier there's just tremendously talented people that live in Madison. So part of my service was reaching back and trying to cultivate new leadership to create new leaders and to step aside and make room for them. So um, I'm very proud of my service. I feel very honored to have served the city of Madison. And although I served just one term, I feel like that was impactful. 
Now, you sort of alluded to it there, but uh, late last month, you voted against a a change in older pay, which would have given alders an hourly raise of about $5 an hour. And I, I've spoken with a few alders not seeking re-election who have stated that uh, that alder pay is one of the reasons that they aren't seeking re-election, uh, saying that the time that they put into the job uh, just doesn't add up to how they're compensated. Why were you so opposed to raising alder pay? And what what are your thoughts on the alders who, who aren't running for re-election because of because of that pay oh that's a great question and not to sound flippant but good i'm glad that they're not running uh, because it's not a job as i said before it truly has to be a public service so throughout the history of the common council there's certainly alders that put in way more time perhaps more effort, and maybe they have the privilege to do that. Maybe they have the financial means where they're secure and they can dedicate the time. But I think what's missing in the argument as far as all their pay is that we represent our constituents, the citizens of Madison. They're our bosses, ultimately, and uh, any pay raise should certainly go through our constituents via referendum. As far as it's just not worth it financially, then get out. That's fine. It's never, in my mind at least, it should never be a tool for financial means. And we see at every level where money is an issue in politics. And I wish at every level (laughs) that more of our public servants would truly be public servants rather than do it for the money or doing it for a political springboard to another office. So I, I feel like that's people's personal choices that in the past I left the Common Council when I was serving for District 12 because I was a low-income father of four, uh, working three jobs, supporting a a mother that was dying, and it just got to be too much. So recognizing my limitations and also with the firm belief that a true political leader is always looking to instill leadership skills and others and bring emerging leaders to the table, it wasn't hard for me to walk away. So I'm glad and honest reflection that if some of my colleagues feel that it wasn't worth their time financially, that they're stepping away because this isn't a job. This is service. Well, Brian, you've sort of alluded to this already, but what are what are you doing next once your term as Alder comes to an end? I am so lucky. You know the old adage that if you love your work, you never work a day in your life? Well, I work for the UW-Madison Odyssey Project, and there's tremendous need uh, with the close to 600 alumni. We're celebrating our 20th year, and uh, I would really love to dedicate my service to to just double down on my service to those that I serve and my Odyssey family, but also to try to create pathways to get more uh, BIPOC people connected to the natural environment. So I'm looking forward to the spring and just trying to get more people outdoors enjoying the wonderful natural amenities that we have.
I've been talking with District 6 Alder Brian Benford, who will not be running for re-election this spring. As of today, five people have filed a declaration of candidacy to run for the district. The deadline for candidates to file paperwork is January 3rd, and with more than two people running in this race, it will go to a primary election on February 21st. Brian, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Happy holidays. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. So you finally finished picking up those holiday gifts, and maybe some of those gifts are the latest gizmos, gadgets, or smart devices. They look shiny now, but eventually those electronics will break and will be thrown into a storage box in the basement, and then eventually discarded entirely. But once discarded, they don't disappear. So where do they where do they end up? That's just one question WORT reporter Nate Carlin was trying to answer earlier this year in February when he traveled to an e-recycling plant in Janesville. I'm at an electronics recycling center in Janesville, where dozens of old TVs are awaiting disassembly. They're the boxy kind that you might find collecting dust in your basement. About two decades ago, the manufacturer of this kind of television mostly stopped. The industry moved away from this bulky design in favor of flat-screen models. Yet they're still around, languishing in basements, dorms, and second-hand stores. Eventually, they get thrown away for good. Which brings us to these TVs in Janesville, which are being demanufactured. These are cathode ray tube TVs, sometimes shortened to CRT TVs. It's one of the highest value materials that we bring in. People just still have them and they're getting rid of them. And we thought about five years ago that they would be gone by this point. And now we're thinking five to 10 more years. We're talking about millions of pounds per year just of CRT devices. That's Emily Garcia. She's the plant manager at Universal Recycling Technologies, an e-recycling company based in Janesville. When the company began in the early 2000s, it was exclusively disassembling cathode ray tube televisions. Boutique businesses, like Universal Recycling Technologies, sprang up to recycle the expensive glass tubes within these TVs, keeping them from the landfill. Ray Zilke, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Universal Recycling Technologies, says the industry has changed over the decades. Yes, technology has evolved household computers to laptops to cell phones and now AirPods. Smaller and smaller electronics that do more and more that all have batteries. That's kind of the evolution and very high level, the, but the industry is continuing to grow and we get more units in every year, but the weight decreases just from the overall size of units. Now, universal recycling is capable of a whole host of electronics recycling. And as the variety has grown, so has their number of plants. The company now spans the country with three other similar plants in Texas, Oregon, and Vermont. It wasn't just the new technologies that fueled the growth of e-recycling. In 2003, e-recycling got a big break when California outlawed putting electronics in landfills. A whole flurry of states followed suit with new regulations around e-waste, including Wisconsin in 2010. Now it is illegal to put computers, televisions, and cell phones into a landfill, as well as a few other assorted electronics. The city of Madison sends the electronics it collects to Universal Recycling Technologies, making up some of the nearly 400,000 pounds of electronics the facility handles daily. Garcia says that every day they see products they haven't seen before. Most of the time they have the same 
um, premise, you know, look inside, see what's in there. Are there things we have to remove or can we just chuck it in the shredder and go? Um, every day they're coming out with a new product that has a battery inside of it. If batteries go through our shredder, that could potentially cause a thermal event, which is what we do not want. So in that aspect, we have to look at almost every single item that comes in here and do a quality check on it before we process it. Whatever the type, the electronics are treated approximately the same. Exterior wiring is cut, batteries are removed, and then they are run through a massive industrial shredder, turning everything into thin strips no longer than a few inches. Magnets pull out steel, and directed air blows out aluminum. From there, the shredded material is run through a large machine called an optical sorter that uses color and sheen to sort materials by type. In the end, there are only a few constituent parts to the wide array of electronics, plastic, glass, metal, and circuit boards. The glass is ground down into a fine powder to be sold to manufacturers. It's the only product from this plant that is sent directly to be remade into new products. All the other materials, though, are sold to even more specialized recyclers. These materials need more processing before they are ready to be used in new products. The plastics have to go through another sorter before they are ready to be sent to plastics recyclers. This sorter uses water at different densities to separate the plastics using flotation. For all the extra work, plastics recycling is the least profitable material here. While circuit boards have valuable metals in them, like silver and gold, plastic is still quite cheap. And additives are commonly added to plastic that make them harder to sort by type. Zolke says that plastics are a tough material stream to keep up to date with. It causes us issues because if you look at our plastic separation model out there, we have more and more plastics falling out because they don't fit into the two buckets that, that we're really looking for, right? You know, maybe in the past, had we done that 10 years ago, we maybe would have captured 60 or 70% into those two buckets. And now we're capturing uh, probably 30, maybe 40% into those two buckets because of, the, because of the differences in the plastics that are being used. In the back end of the plant, huge sacks filled with homogenous material await shipment to the next leg in their recycling journey. In general, the world of recycling is a world of layers. Consumer goods have to go through multiple instances of breakdown and sorting before they are turned into new products. Any single recycling company is usually responsible for only a single layer in the process. Sometimes this leads to problems in the recycling industry. Electronics recycling in particular has an unsavory reputation for stripping the valuable materials out of electronics and then sending the hazardous or cheap materials overseas to be dumped. Zolke says they are working to ensure that they don't contribute to overseas dumping. What we have done is become part of the eStewards network. It's a certification where companies um, certify that they're not going to send waste product to developing countries. You get audited every year to that process and they, they come in, they audit our books, do mass balance checks to ensure that where we say we're sending our product, it's really going there. But the biggest help in that and alleviating that problem has been China itself and creating their green fence, as they call it, and <coughs> eliminating the import of those products. They've actually done a decent job in eliminating that trade of waste going into their country. The volume of recycled electronics has recently stagnated. After the first wave of states outlawed electronics and landfills, other states hesitated to follow suit. Currently, electronics recycling is only required in about two dozen states. Garcia says they think the people tightening their belts and throwing less away in the last couple years might also be a factor. Last year in 2020, we actually saw a reduction of inbounds. We're associating that with COVID, people not wanting to kind of 
spring clean and fall clean as much, or if they are spring cleaning, they're pushing their CRTs further back into the basement. We do anticipate that volume uh, not necessarily skyrocketing over the next couple years, but definitely going up more than what we've seen in the past two years. And that's pretty standard in this industry overall. Everyone kind of saw a decrease during 2020 and 2021. The industry has also been battered by fluctuations in the shipping market. Waste industries in general have been hit hard by high shipping costs. Secondhand plastic or glass is worth very little by weight. The profit is all in large volumes. But now large volumes of recycled goods are expensive to ship to facilities that can handle them, and the industry is turning to new solutions and processes. As a scrap facility, which this is here at Beloit Avenue, it's a pennies game. Literally, you're making pennies per pound, and you just have to, the volume make, generates enough <coughs> revenue that, that you can make a profit. But if shipping costs eat away at that, which they have been, especially this year, especially well, 2021, mm -hmm. shipping costs we've seen go up anywhere from 25% to double some of our rates from different shipping lanes. And so that's obviously eating up a large part of, of what would be profit. There's a certain lag to the e-recycling industry. Much like the old CRT TVs gathering dust in the basement, the trick is predicting the next product that is ready to be thrown away. Electronics have a long life cycle, but eventually even they need to be disposed of. Zolke says the next product they'll have to adapt to? Solar panels. Solar panels have 20-25 year life cycle, and the first solar fields, especially by the utilities, the big solar fields were put in about that time frame. So they're coming up to be refreshed and now what are we going to do with the old panels that nobody thought of 20 years ago? Another possible recyclable material are rare earth metals. Rare earth metals are a valuable commodity used in trace amounts in advanced electronics, and as the name suggests, are quite scarce. They are also a current pawn in geopolitics, as China has threatened to stop exporting them. If this drives the price up, the trace amounts in electronics could become worth reclaiming. There is clearly value there, but Zilke says the small volumes make it a tricky material to recover. And there's multiple companies that are looking at rare earths, some much bigger than us, um, because of the concern over the availability of rare earths if China closes their border yeah. and says, hey, we're not shipping those out anymore, right? There's a lot of research and development going into that and how do we recover those because there is su such a finite amount in each computer circuit board, for example. How do you actually recover that and cost justify it? versus, you know, the gold and silver and, and copper, palladium, where you can recover those and, and make money off of that. This is a common rhythm in the recycling industry. There is a constant push and pull to the pricing of recyclable materials. When prices of goods are high, recycling becomes viable, like with the glass cylinders and CRT TVs. But when the prices are low, recycling can struggle to be profitable. Nowadays, universal recycling technology barely breaks even on them. Reporting for WORT News and Wastelands, this is Nate Carlin. The snowfall has come to an end here in Madison, at least for the moment. Next comes the frigid temperatures and high winds that will be blowing through the area tomorrow. Now, while that might not make good travel for conditions for cars, it could be great conditions for an ice yacht. In 1947... Orvin O.T. Havey, one of Madison's largest electrical contractors, commissioned what would become the fastest thing on ice, the ice yacht known as the Mary B. In this week's Archival edition of Radio Chipstone, feature contributor Jennifer Fields paid a visit to the Mary B with 
Don Sanford, historian, author, filmmaker, and ice boat sailor. Not, not many things powered by the wind go faster than the wind, except ice boats. Ice boaters are hard water sailors, and, and people who sail in the summertime are soft water sailors. So Don, when we're talking about ice boats and we're talking about this tradition, it seems to me something that's steeped in nostalgia. How popular is ice racing or is it ice yachting? What do we call this thing and are people still doing it? It's, oh, people still do it. It's ice boating or ice boat racing. Historically, it was called ice yachting because everything that was, had a sail in it was called a yacht, even if it was, you know, little. But today, we call it ice boating. And, and people race ice boats. We have a very, very active club here in Madison called the Four Lakes Ice Yacht Club that's been in existence since the 20s, if not before that. And we run races on Lake Kiganza, Lake Monona, Lake Mendota, and our members travel a lot because we don't always have ice boating conditions. And this is one of these goofy sports where if you want to practice what you do, you want to go, go sail in the wintertime, you may have to drive someplace. You know, last winter, three weekends in a row, I drove to Green Lake. One year, I drove to the far west side of Minnesota to sail for two days and turn around and came back. I spent more time in the car than I did on the ice. It just depends how Mother Nature has dealt out the cards of cold weather and, and ice. First of all, she is gorgeous, and I know from the documentary that this is spruce. It's not just, it's not just ordinary spruce. The Mary Bee is built out of Sitka spruce, and Sitka spruce comes from the Pacific Northwest, where it grows along the coast in these kind of rainforest conditions. It's it's a special wood in that it's, it's light and it's pretty strong. And so it's, it's a wood that people use to build airplanes, parts of canoes, and ice boats. And so this, the, there, there are eh, three or four parts to this thing. It reminds me if you've ever seen in Hawaii, those rigor races. Outrigger out Outrigger races. That's out, what it kind of reminds me of. It, 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 you know, outriggers, I think they only have one outrigger on one side. Yes. But it's, you know, it's like that. If you want to visualize something, there's a long hull, and then there's a thing that's attached perpendicular to it, and that's kind of the way the runner plank is, except the runner plank crosses it. Here's one of the old runners from the ice boat. It's a piece of steel. Actually, these are aluminum, and this one is... Yes, this is six feet long. The runner itself is an inch thick, and the very bottom has been ground to an edge. Ice boat runners are ground to a 90-degree angle on the bottom on a special machine that makes them very sharp, so they'll cut into the ice. You wouldn't want to drop this on your foot. So there's one at each end of the runner plank. So now we've got the, we've got the backbone, and then we've got the runner plank resting against it. We've got a runner on each end. Now, the next thing is, it's got to go. You know, something's got to make this thing go. And, and what makes it go is the sail and the mast. It's hollow. It looks like a trellis on the inside. So, and, that, and that serves two purposes. It makes it lighter than building it like solid like a phone pole. 
and it also lets it bend. You know, I'm, 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 I've got just this end piece here, and you see how it wiggles? Okay. All the way down. All the way down. And what I said over there, that the runner plank has a crown on it. The hull has a crown on it. Ice boats are fast because they've been designed so that when they get hit with a blast of wind, rather than popping up off the ice, everything compresses. It absorbs that shock of that big blast of wind, and then it releases it. And when it releases it, it helps propel you forward. This ice boat was built in Madison at a time when uh, there was a lot of manufacturing here. And so the hardware that you see here, like this beautiful thing we call this the hound that holds the shrouds on the mast, that was, that was built cast at the Wisconsin Foundry on East Mifflin Street. Ice boating is one of these sports, and there are probably others, but ice boating is one of these sports that's done in a community. And uh, the parts and pieces were built by a group of people. I mean, there was, there was a head craftsman, uh, Frank Tetzloff, and, and the designer, Carl Bernard, but you can't handle big pieces of wood like this with just two guys and so when it comes time to really put things together to build it, you need um, a dozen people, maybe more. You don't need them for very long, but you need them because, you know, you have the glue mixed and the glue is going to, you know, cure and you're racing against the clock to get this, get this whole thing, this assembly all put together and clamped up before the glue goes off. One of the things that I also found interesting is that I spent a lot of time in Chicago, I spent a lot of time in a lot of places. For me, the South Side will always be Kamitsky. It's not U.S. Cellular Field. This boat has been created and maintained over the years by a variety of businesses in the community, but you don't see stickers and advertisements all over it. It's still the Mary B. It was it's not the Freundlich boat. It's not the people making boats. It was, it was always owned by individuals. It was never really owned by a business. It was always, Mary B. was always owned by individuals. Uh, the first owner was O.T. Havey, and he was prudent enough to name the boat after his wife. And back then, uh, in the 40s and even beyond that, businesses, uh, there was no, people, things weren't branded. The, you know, boats were somebody's project, uh, and, and, and people owned them, individuals owned them, and raced them or campaigned them. It, it wasn't a corporate endeavor. And actually, she's never really been owned in, in a, we're really, if, if you want to call the Ice Boat Foundation a corporate endeavor, I suppose you could, but we're a nonprofit organization. And, and the Mary B was built at a time when, when uh, individuals did things just to do them. So Havy, when he built this boat, we believe he spent about $24,000 in 1948. What would be the cost now? 250000 Then, after he had it built, he had to have it, you know, he had, and, and we really don't know if the guy, he never sailed it. Havy is, like, Havy is like the guy who owns a Formula One car or a horse that runs in the Kentucky Derby. Those owners probably never get on that horse. Maybe they go and pet it, but they're, you know, they're not riders. Havy was the same way. He wasn't a sailor. 
he had this boat built to win races and he had an arrangement and we really don't know whether he'd hired Carl Bernard or Carl just did it but he Carl Bernard was the guy who steered it and sailed it for I don't know 15 years and and Havy is the one who paid the bills who had it when it needed new sails he wrote the check and bought the sails when it needed to be revarnished he had it revarnished when it needed he if it, when it, it needed a trailer, he paid, wrote the check, and, and he paid the bills. And he did that just because he thought it was neat. He, in, in when, you, when you race sailboats, there's a big cash flow, and the cash only goes one way, out, because you've got the expense of building it, maintaining it, taking it someplace, um, you know, all, everything that's involved in, in taking care of anything at all in sailing or ice boating. That's why we call those sports, we call it pure sport, because you're just doing it. Well, you're also doing it for the Stewart Cup, too, aren't you? Well, you're, but you don't get to, you're, yes, you're doing it for a cup, but you don't get to keep the cup. Where is it now? The, the Silver Cup, the cups that the Mary B won, the Hearst and the Stewart, are... Uh, in the possession of the uh, Wisconsin Stern Steers Association, they organized those regattas, and the both those cups now uh, are held by the owner of an ice boat called the Deuce, and the Deuce is bigger than the B, but not as pretty. Is. I've never seen it, and I'm just going to call it, it right now. It's not as pretty. <laughs> the Deuce is is bigger than the Mary B by almost 10 feet. It is immense. And it's owned by a guy, uh, Rick Henning, who lives over in uh, uh, near Racine, and he's the he's the last one. Last time they ran those races was maybe the Hearst and Stewart, maybe about uh, six seven years ago. And so he has he has the trophies now. But when you see the trophy, every boat that has won the trophy has the na its name on it. And and in sailing, you receive a trophy when you win a race or a regatta and you get to hang on to it until the regatta is run again and then you give it to the next person. Like the Stanley Cup. Like the Stanley Cup, right. Your name is scratched on the bottom and you get to put it in a case and go, oh, that's really neat. And then a year later, they have another Stanley Cup and it goes someplace else. Don, when was the last time that Mary B was on the ice in racing? Oh, well, the last time she was on the ice was in 2020. But that was just for fun. We just took her for a sail. Uh, the last time she raced really was in 2003. Uh, and I may not have even, actually it might have been before that. It's, it's, with a big ice boat like this, first off, you need a huge sheet of ice. You know, we're talking the size of Lake Monona with hardly any snow on it. And it's gotta be at least six inches thick and uh, and it's because you have to drive a truck out there, you have to take this thing that weighs a ton, and then there are going to be four or five of these things out there. All, so you've got to have all this ice, and we don't always get that ice these, lately. And, and to sail a big Class A stern steerer like this, you need a foot of ice, 12 inches, and you need a big space like the size of Lake Monona. 
And uh, Mother Nature doesn't always deliver those conditions. And uh, you know how it always rains on your day off? Yeah. Yeah, right? Ice boating is, 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 is one of the most fickle sports that you could imagine because you need, to, first off, you have to have a lot of ice. You've got to have, for a small boat, six inches of ice. For a big boat like this, a foot. It can't be too cold. If it's, if it's below 10 degrees, we, we typically don't sail because you're, you know, frostbite. And, 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 and you've got to have wind. And you've got to have a clear ice. You can't sail through. You could, you could sail this boat through maybe two inches of snow. But that's about it. So you have to have all these factors. And to get all those factors to land all at the right place at the right time, it's always been a challenge. And now with, with the way our climate is changing, it's become more of a challenge because we just don't, we just don't see that kind of ice. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT Live Local News at 6. Your headline writers were Aaron Ashley and Peter Voller. Special thanks to feature contributors Nate Carlin and Jonifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show, and Nate Weehout and Sally Pittman co-produced this news podcast. Ms. Pittman is also the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Up next, the Perpetual Notion Machine answers all your questions about agroforestry. Have a good night and a safe and warm holiday weekend. Next Monday, we'll be back with an investigative special from producer Nate Wiggyhout. 